This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. The legal information presented on In Legal Terms is meant to provide general information about the topics discussed and is not necessarily the opinion of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. The information conveyed does not create any type of attorney-client relationship. Please consult an attorney provider before making any decisions about your specific legal questions. Welcome to In Legal Terms from MPB Think Radio. It's the show about you and your rights. Our host is Professor Richard Gershon of the University of Mississippi School of Law. Hello, Professor Gershon. Good morning, Liz. I hope you had a good weekend. Hope you're going to have a good Thanksgiving. And uh, today we are excited to have attorney Max Myers back on the show. Max actually is an immigration attorney or has been doing immigration law with uh, the Mississippi Center for Justice, but he also happens to be a Supreme Court scholar and historian. And Max, uh, welcome back to the show. Tell us a little bit about your background and how you became interested in the Supreme Court of the United States. Well, uh, good morning, and, and thank you very much for having me. I'm uh, really excited to be back with you, uh, particularly on a show talking about the Supreme Court, uh, which we'll get into in a moment. Um, a little bit of a, a bit of a background about myself. I'm originally from Michigan, uh, moved to Mississippi in 2010. I taught school in Sunflower County uh, for about a couple of years and then worked in the public schools there for another three. Went to law school and came back, uh, back home to Mississippi after that. Uh, my wife and I live in Jackson and I work at the Mississippi Center for Justice on their immigration team. Awesome. Well, you know, it is always good to have you on the show, and, and uh, we've had uh, several uh, of your colleagues from the Mississippi Center for Justice, and we appreciate the good work that they're doing as well. Now, how was the Supreme Court created, and what was its purpose? So uh, the Supreme Court is created like the other uh, two branches of the presidency and Congress uh, through the uh, United States Constitution. Uh, Article Three is the particular part of the Constitution that applies to uh, the federal courts. And the Supreme Court is actually the only court that's mentioned by name in Article Three. It's, it's a very short, uh, short description. Um, and then beyond that, um, you know, the number of justices, which we'll, we'll talk about, I'm sure, every, everything is formed either by statute, by you know, by the U.S. Congress, or by internal customs and procedures that a lot of times the public doesn't know about until you know, decades or years afterwards. Well, yeah, it, it, is the court required to hear every case that's filed? I, I, we, we were talking uh, before the show about the, the recent case between Tennessee and, and Mississippi. So, you know, cases between states. I mean, wh when does it have to hear cases and when is it discretionary? So the, um, the, the jurisdiction that the court has, and by that what I mean is the, the types of cases that they're allowed to hear, um, is designed by Congress. Uh, Congress has created over the past you know, 220 plus years several different laws that have at times given more power to the judiciary. So it increased the types of cases that they could hear, as well as taken away uh, some of the types of cases. Um, that they can hear. And so it, the, ten, the Mississippi versus Tennessee case, uh, which was decided today, it it's, was the first uh, Supreme Court decision from the 2021 Supreme Court term. Um, that is what's called an original jurisdiction case. That's, that means that it is something that only the Supreme Court can hear. No other federal court, no other state court would be even allowed to hear that case. And in order for Mississippi to have uh, started that case and into a broad, they actually asked the Supreme Court directly to have permission to file this lawsuit. Uh, and 
and in doing so, it, it starts um, what's called an original jurisdiction case. For other cases, um, and, and think, um, you know, let's say, uh, you know, Dean Gershon and I are getting into an argument and I want to file a lawsuit against you, I can go to federal district court and file a lawsuit there, and then that can work its way up through the appeals court, ultimately getting to the Supreme Court. Or uh, if there are cases involving a federal issue or a constitutional question that go through the state court, once it reaches the highest court in the state, so in Mississippi, that would be the Mississippi State Supreme Court, once they've issued a final ruling, if that case deals with a federal issue or a constitutional issue, uh, the person can then apply to have, they can appeal uh, by, by asking for a writ of certiorari, which is basically like applying to the Supreme Court to have them hear your appeal. This morning, we are talking about the Supreme Court, the makeup, how it comes about, who's on it, what's going on. We would love for you to send us an email with your questions. Our address is legalterms at mpbonline.org. Max, you mentioned that, so it's Congress, really, that has the power to essentially enumerate uh, the Supreme Court's powers. What in the Constitution talk, what does the Constitution say about the Supreme Court at all? It, really little. Um, it, Article 3 is um, maybe, I, I'm trying to think, my, you know, grammar is not my specialty in this context, but I think it's either one sentence or two, or one very long sentence or two sentences uh, that, that discuss what the Supreme Court, you know, what the federal judiciary is supposed to look like. Doesn't even mention that there, the number of justices or that there should be a chief justice. The chief justice position is, is actually mentioned in Article 2, which deals with presidential powers, and, and it's only mentioned in the context of when a president is uh, being impeached and when the Senate is actually having an impeachment trial that the chief justice of the United States will sit as the judge for that, for that proceeding. So it, it really has taken um, the Article 3 and, and the, the judiciary is one of the branches of government where the evolution uh, of, of the institution has been almost entirely crafted by people and, and by the, the, the people at that time. It's not based on what the founders wrote, but rather what people have decided over the years. Um, I, I'll say really quickly that that, that has worked. Um, you know, in a lot of times, politicians can can use that for their advantage. The most notorious and and first uh, instance of this was in 1801 uh, when the when the Federalists shrunk the size of the court once John Adams lost the presidency in 1800. They passed uh, what's called the Midnight Judges Act, and, and I'll say that if there's ever an act that uses the word midnight in it, referring to the the ex, you know the expedited, expedited nature of it, that's a flag that it's probably not a good law. And this certainly was one of those instances. It rather than give Thomas Jefferson the same number of, of appointments, uh, the, what what the law essentially said was upon the death or res resignation of the next Supreme Court justice, instead of having six judges or justices, we'll only have five. Um, and that's happened at, at other times, 1860s. Uh, Congress also did that to uh, take away power from Andrew Johnson. And so it, it's been one of these situations where if, if Congress does, if you don't have the support of Congress uh, as president, you're, you're not going to get uh, you're not going to get that that appointment. Speaking of uh, the president now, the, the president's power is to appoint Supreme Court justices. Uh, so how does that process work? And, and and those are lifetime appointments. Why are they lifetime appointments? So the 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 Supreme Court um, 
just like you said, it, it, in order to be appointed to it, uh, a president nominates a, a person and then the Senate confirms them. Um, a lot uh, over the first 150 years or so of our, of our country, that was a pretty uh, simple process that did not um, that, that, that didn't actually take very much um, time in Senate. There wasn't a committee hearings. The first instance of, a, of what we see is the modern confirmation process. And by that, I mean uh, FBI background checks into the, into the candidate, uh, you know, sitting before the Judiciary Committee being grilled and then having a full vote by the Senate. Um, the first instance of that was when uh, Louis Brandeis was, uh, was appointed in the, in the 19-teens. Um, a lot of that was anti-Semitic, uh, and, it, and it was essentially, you know, the, the senators forced him to go through hours and hours of grilling testimony. Um, but in the current context, and we've seen this with the most recent uh, three appointees under former President Trump, um, it, it's a, it can be a multi-week or even multi-month affair where they dig into every aspect of the senators, dig into every aspect of the judges, you know, previous decisions if they've been a judge or the attorney's uh, previous work if they've, if they've been in private practice. Well, we've certainly gotten an education on how Supreme Court nominees are appointed in the last six years. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. It, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, it, it's been, um, I mean, it's been very, we, 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 in the last six years, we've lived in a period of flux in, in the way that our um, judicial appointments are, are crafted. We've seen people go from the, you know, the traditional, I mean, um, I think Senator Lindsey Graham loves to talk about how he voted for both uh, Justice Sotomayor and Justice Kagan. Um, that would be almost unthinkable now at this point, given the, the types of polarized battles that we have. Um, they've gotten rid of the filibuster for, uh, for judicial nominees, so it's a simple majority vote at this point. And, and what you end up seeing is that the, the, it, 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 at this point, it starts to impact the legitimacy of the court as well, which is what we also see in response to the new uh, procedures that we have for, for confirmation. There have been uh, a, a judicial commission uh, started up by President Biden trying to see where, how can we as a nation put more legitimacy into that branch of the government. And, and I think, Max, part of the issue might be, I mean, these are, and other federal court appointments are lifetime appointments. Why, why, was, why is that? And is that something that maybe we should look at? It, like, I will say at the outset, lifetime appointments, when you think about what the United States is and the type of government that we have, we have a democracy. And the whole, the, the backbone of our democracy is majority rule, you know, popular, popular vote. Whoever wins the vote gets to, you know, have the power. Uh, the Supreme Court is the only branch that is anti-democratic in the sense that it's not term limited. It's not uh, based on voters. We have no say. It's completely removed from, from the political process. Uh, and, and that goes to what it's supposed to accomplish. It's, supposed to, it's not supposed to be a political branch. It's not supposed to be uh, taking in the the well, the felt necessities of our time. That, 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 that's one, you know, that's Justice Holmes's idea of what the court is supposed to do. But realistically, what it's supposed to do, it's, it's supposed to add balance and neutrality to our lives and allow us to have the kind of stability uh, to say essentially what the law is. And what the framers were worried about is if folks were accountable to elections every four, six, eight years, 10 years, that they will be uh, that the justices would be subject to uh, political pressure, 
and that they wouldn't necessarily act on what they knew to be correct based on what the Constitution says or what the law says. Because a lot of times, law can be harsh. Uh, the, the, the outcomes that it has can, can be a real rude awakening for folks. And, and I think that at times what you see is judges wanting to soften the blow or wanting to make things seem, um, you, you know, what, what, what should be true in their heart versus what ultimately what the law dictates. And in that instance, um, life appointment comes in handy because at the end of the day, we wouldn't have gotten some of the biggest decisions that we've had with the most profound social impact and social progress without judges having life tenure because they've been able to step outside of the political arena. You can send us an email to our address, legalterms at mpbonline.org if you have a question. We are discussing the Supreme Court with guest Max Myers from the Mississippi Center for Justice. Did you know there were justices on our money? I'll tell you more next. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. us each week for Everyday Tech on MPB Think Radio. We have an IT expert, a computer repair ace, and we troubleshoot your problems on the phones as well. Everyday Tech, Wednesdays at 10 on MPB Think Radio. Download the podcast now or listen on YouTube on the MPB Think Radio channel. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. This is in legal terms. Not everybody has a chance to listen to our show live. So if you've missed any of our programs, you can listen to the whole show on our website, inlegalterms.mpbonline.org. Our host is Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law. I'm Liz Gill. Our guest is... Max Myers from the Mississippi Center for Justice, and we're talking about the U.S. Supreme Court. So here's a little fact. John Marshall was on the $500 bill, while Salmon P. Chase was on the $10,000 bill, but neither bill is in circulation today. That was a surprise for me. I had no idea. (laughs) Me either. That was that's that's interesting. It really is, and um, never seen either one of those. Uh, and you probably won't. We do have a call today. We're going to go to Meridian and talk with Scott. Scott, thank you so much for calling into In Legal Terms today. What's your comment or question for our uh, Supreme Court show? Thank you for taking my call. My my question is. Uh, you know, there are a lot of decisions that the Supreme Court's made over the years that probably stretch the powers of the federal government, many of which, you know, I agree with. 
But what uh, constitutional basis have the judges used throughout the years? And I know this is a broad question, but, you know, we're a democratic republic as a country and how the Constitution is very uh, specific about the uh, powers given to the federal government. And uh, I guess my question is how the Supreme Court has reconciled uh, so many of the rulings and, and really the, the strength of our central government now, uh, when you put it in view of the Constitution and how limited the Constitution uh, says the federal government should be. So um, I can certainly talk about that. So I, I, I think, um, well, first of all, let me say thank you very much for your question. And, and I think that what you're hitting on is something um, that I would consider to be the evolution of our government overall uh, in our nation. I, I think our nation has gone from a, um, you know, a group of states that, have, that came together to bond to make a, a nation in, you know, these United States into the United States. And in that sense, the Supreme Court has reacted to that and also um, mirrored a lot of that change in its own decisions. Uh, the, the particular parts of the Constitution that they've relied on for that oftentimes relate to state sovereignty and state powers. Um, trying to, in recent years, trying to preserve as much of that as possible. Um, you'll look into things like uh, equal footing or equal dignity of states. Uh, that was what the um, what the federal what what, uh, what Justice Roberts relied on in order to. Uh, strike down key parts of the Voting Rights Act. Um, that was all based on states' powers and states' rights. Um, and so you've seen in recent years uh, a resurgence of, of that. But over time, you know, prior to that, over the, the first, you know, the, the basically the 100 years, the 150 years or so uh, from after the Civil War until the Rehnquist Court, um, what you saw during that time, sorry, 130 years, I big time math stickler. I know my dad is listening and I would hate to mess up my math in front of him. But, uh, I, I, what I've seen is um, there, what, what we've seen as a nation is during that time um, a strengthening of the federal government's powers through the Commerce Clause in particular, uh, and, and what that essentially does is it says that states cannot pass laws, and, and this is not what the Commerce Clause says. I'll say this is this is how the court has interpreted the Commerce Clause of the Constitution: that states can't pass laws that have a um, an, an impact or particularly a negative impact on. Uh, interstate commerce. And that's been used to uh, as, as the basis to strike down um, some segregation laws. Uh, you saw that in the, um, the heart of what is the heart of Atlanta motel case from the 60s, uh, where the where the Supreme Court essentially said that uh, discrimination in hotels and in housing uh, interferes with interstate travel because someone, for example, traveling from Mississippi to Michigan, uh, would be passing through a variety, a hodgepodge of potential um, segregation laws. And so that would have a, a deterrent effect for people, you know, for citizens traveling between states. Therefore, the Supreme Court said no, you know, no uh, uh, segregation laws would be allowed in uh, public accommodations. Um, and, and that's, you know, and the Commerce Clause has also been relied on for, for other, uh, you know, power, not power seizing, but, but certainly uh, maintaining power within the federal government. But like I said, you've seen in the last uh, 20, 30 years a, a pretty, I wouldn't call it seismic, but a pretty large shift from uh, maintaining the power and the authority of the federal government 
to trying to find a, uh, a balance or, or trying to even restore some of those powers into the states that did not exist or, or that had previously existed uh, that had not been in existence for the last 120 years or so. Thank you. Thank you very much. Max, when you talk about that balance, I mean, it, it, it is part of the reason why this is a non-democratically elected court is because there are times when the majority could create laws like segregation or uh, you know, laws that discriminated against women, uh, that the Supreme Court saying, hey, if we're going to protect the rights of those who aren't in the majority, we need, we need something like the Supreme Court, I should say. The Constitution is saying that as a backstop uh, against you know, a total majoritarian rule. That- Definitely. I think, you know, when we, when we look at um, a particular case that, that comes to mind, and, um, and we can talk more about this down the road, but Lochner, uh, for example, that was a case from the, uh, I think it was 1905 or 1907, that basically said um, the right to contract, so the right for an employer to hire an employee uh, is, is, untouchable. Uh, you can't, you know, states can't pass laws that impact the minimum wage or that say, you know, what a person has to be paid, um, work, work site regulations, safety regulations, all that sort of stuff. The, the Lochner decision um, essentially said that states are forced to take a hands-off approach from that. And that, and that was, you know, that was the popular opinion of, in terms of the power holders, you know, the folks who actually were funding uh, the the political parties at the time, as well as a lot of the the, the business owners and, and people who had the economic power, and and that wasn't that wasn't going to go away unless uh, the the court overruled itself. And so, thirty five odd years later, what we saw is that the Supreme Court, in order to maintain uh, you know the the legitimacy, because at that point, so the Great Depression was happening, there was a lot, there was a big need for there to be economic regulation as well as workers' protection and workers' rights and workers' safety, that the Supreme Court acted in that moment to essentially reverse itself in order to, um, in order to have some sense of justice. Court, and, and justice is not with a capital J, but with a lowercase j. And, and that would not have been possible, I think, if, if, it, was, uh, if it was a court full of, of uh, politicians rather than judges. It's so interesting. I mean, one of the political issues is how many people are on the court. And you, as you mentioned, that's really up to Congress, ultimately. Um, has the number of justices changed during its, uh, the, the existence of the Supreme Court? It has. So it's gone from as few as five, uh, which was the number that uh, Congress set in the Midnight Judges Act uh, for Jefferson, all the way it ballooned up to 10 uh, during the Civil War under Abraham Lincoln's presidency. There were 10 justices. And then uh, in another um, sort of you know, political uh, maneuver, Congress actually stripped Lincoln's successor, Andrew Johnson, of having two appointments and shrunk the court down to eight. And it was uh, a couple of years later, it was restored to nine, which is where it's been since then. I think that was 1869. Um, since, since then, it's been, it's been stuck at nine. There was uh, some conversation during the 30s uh, under FDR's presidency and this was actually in in response to the stagnation of the Lochner era, uh, is what it was called. It had basically been almost three decades of um, of, of decision after decision upholding, um, you know, the, the or rather striking down minimum wage laws uh, and, and workers' protections. Um, and and it was in, in that sense that what we saw was that the court 
uh, was attacked, not attacked, but what there was FDR really went after some of the older justices and said, we need to, I need to get a new Supreme Court justice for every person over the age of 70, which would have magically, coincidentally given him, uh, I think it was 14 justices, which would have allowed him to have, uh, you know, a, a super majority essentially, or an unbreakable majority on the court. Um, that did not pass. We did not have any sort of, of court packing. But that's also been a conversation in, in the last couple of years with the Judicial Commission that Biden uh, has created. The whole idea is, you know, do we have term limits? Do we increase the number of the courts? How can we act in order to restore some sense of impartiality and balance to the court? You know, Max, we've we've mentioned in the last six years, we've had such a uh, to-do about people being appointed to the Supreme Court, but I don't think I have heard so much about Congress deciding how many people could or couldn't be. I think that's a trick in a bag nobody has pulled out yet. Uh, do you foresee that? We're so polar right now with Republicans and Democrats, do you foresee that as a uh, a strategy one one political party might use in the near future to get political decisions the way they want them to be? It, cert it certainly is one of the one of the possibilities that could come out of the commission. I, I think, um, and, and so this would be an opportunity to dive in a little bit deeper into that. A at this point, what we've seen in the last, for our listeners who um, you know, for, uh, who, who are thinking about the last six years, think um, uh, frame that within the February uh, 2016 death of Antonin Scalia and 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 the and the change that that had. And so we had a vacancy. So we had eight justices for one year. Uh, up until uh, uh, then President Trump appointed uh, Gorsuch and then Kennedy. So, so that was essentially, when you think about it, a Scalia, who was a very conservative person uh, for, you know, in, with a Gorsuch replacing them, also very conservative, balance was pretty much maintained. Then we saw Kennedy, uh, who resigned, you know, who, who retired and was replaced. Kennedy was a swing vote, very much in the middle, replaced by uh, Brett Kavanaugh, much, much more conservative than, than Kennedy. So that we start to saw, you know, we started to see a little bit more of the, of the tilting of the of the balance towards the conservative side, and it really ha what what happened in 2020 with the death of Justice Ginsburg and her replacement with Justice uh, Barrett. That is Ginsburg, liberal icon, probably the most liberal member of the court, was replaced by uh, Justice Barrett, who is uh, it's it's less than a year, but it's there um, less than one term rather that we've seen for her so far, but by all indications, appears to be um, a, a much more conservative person than Justice Ginsburg. So, uh, Liz, to, to, to see how that adds up at this point, what we see now is that it's a pretty solid 6-3 conservative majority. And the, currently, you know, the, the commission has not made any recommendations, but um, the, the commission was the whole point of why Biden created a commission to study the Supreme Court and term limits and uh, appointment, you know, in the numbers and, and all of that was to, to address the fact that over the last five or six years, we've seen a, a seismic shift, I mean, a huge shift from a pretty balanced court into a very conservative leading court. So if there were to be one political party versus the other that would try to enact legislation to increase the size of the court, to appoint more liberal justices, would be the liberal party, you know, Democratic Party. 
similarly to in, you know to institute term limits at this point it would also be folks trying to get uh, you know Clarence Thomas for example to to retire um, in order to appoint uh, more liberal members realistically it's it's been called the third rail of, of politics that the Supreme Court you, you don't want to touch it because you, you know you get electrocuted at that point and so it, it is it can be lethal for uh, for for a president's um, political future FDR was able to narrowly escape having to you know really take action in that because uh, I think it was Willis Vandevanter uh, retired uh, well there was a switch the switch in time that saved nine. Uh, that was Justice Owen Roberts that um, that that switched from being a conservative leaning justice to being a liberal leaning justice to start upholding all the New Deal uh, policies that had that the court had been striking down. Um, but it really wasn't until people started uh, stepping down from the court and FDR was able to start, you know, uh, replenishing that court with more uh, liberal justices that were more prone to uphold his um, the laws that Congress and that he was signing in. Um, to existence that that they um, that people stopped talking about court packing and, and started settling on nine. Um, I, I really think currently, Liz, that the thing you know people talk quite a bit about the Supreme Court Commission and court packing and term limits, but I think in that part of the conversation, uh, unfortunately, moves away from from the the center of attention that I've seen personally, which is the. The, the evolution of, of Chief Justice John Roberts as being someone who was a solid uh, conservative member of the court, voted to strike down the Voting Rights Act, voted to uphold unlimited you know, campaign expenditures, um, someone who was pretty much guaranteed to be a vote to overturn Roe versus Wade. Um, and what we've seen in the last two years since the, uh, I guess the legitimacy of the court has been called into question based on, on the, the political nature of, of a lot of their decisions, We've seen Chief Justice John Roberts responding by putting himself in the middle. Uh, he's he's been siding with the liberals in some pretty big political cases. Uh, think about June Medical uh, from the 2020 uh, or from the 2019 court decision. It was decided in the summer of 2020, which was an abortion uh, an abortion rights uh, case that Chief Justice John Roberts actually voted with the four liberals to uphold uh, the you know. The, the option of, of, of pro-choice. Um, also with DACA, we saw that Chief Justice John Roberts voted with the four liberals in order to preserve DACA. Um, so I, I think that's his personal response to the, uh, the, the shift in the court and trying to maintain legitimacy because at the end of the day, it is the Roberts court. Uh, and so it's really his name and his legacy that's, that's gonna be uh, at stake. Funny, you should mention Roberts courts. Uh, hang on just a minute. I hope you will give us a call. This, you know, this is not just stodgy textbook things. This is going on right now, and it influences all of us. Our address where you can email us questions is legalterms at mpbonline.org. We are talking with Max Myers from the Mississippi Center for Justice about the Supreme Court of the United States. And as Max just said, we are in the area of the Roberts Court. It's the 17th. And I'm going to explain about that next. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio.
Hi, I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. On the original Southern Remedy, we answer questions about all aspects of your health and share some of the latest medical information in the news. You can listen to the show on Wednesdays at 11 on MPB Think Radio, or you can subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy on your preferred podcasting app. You are listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Professor Richard Gershon is our expert host. I am Liz Gill. Hey, we do hope that you'll subscribe to our podcast, or you can find MPB Think Radio recordings uh, at mpbonline.org slash radio. This morning, we're talking about the U.S. Supreme Court with our guest, Max Myers, from the Mississippi Center for Justice. Now, Supreme Court historians, like our good friend Max, uh, categorize eras in court history by the name of the chief justice presiding over the court and its sessions. So there have been 17 chief justices, hence 17 counts. And, and, I, and I'll, I'll, Liz, I'll take that opportunity really quick to mention one thing that I, I learned recently, which is um, for the first, under the first 16 chief justices, so up until the current uh, chief justice, John Roberts, uh, justices and chief justices were pooled together for the total number. So in, in other words, there have been, a, I think, 117 or 100, and there have been a, a lot. I, I wrote down the number somewhere. Um, but it, up, up until chief justice, John Roberts, he started removing the, the 17 people who served as chief justice. So, for example, Justice Elena Kagan was sworn in as the 100th justice rather than the 116th justice, for example. So that, that's been... Uh, and then I'll also mention along those lines, too, that uh, one of my favorite uh, things that I've learned is, is uh, and also I think pretty true, um, Justice Byron White said that it's really a matter of every new person that comes onto the court changes that court. So for... For the current term, for example, it really should be viewed more as the Amy Coney Barrett court rather than the Chief Justice John Roberts court, uh, because just that one new person can have a profound impact on the court. Such a good point. And speaking of, of the way things change, let's talk a little bit about stare decisis, uh, which is, I, you know, I took four years of Latin in high school, so I have to use it every once in a while. Uh, nobody will speak it to me. Um, what, what exactly does that mean? And, and we, we've heard a lot about it in the news, but how does that impact decisions of the Supreme Court? So um, to, to validate the Latin component, I'll translate it for everybody. To stand by the thing decided, uh, that's stare decisis. Um, and, it's, and essentially, it's, it's one of the, the foundational rules or, or doctrines of the court. Uh, and, and what it means is if there is a decision that has already been made on a particular issue, of law uh, or based on a case in the past that the current Supreme Court has to uh, has to apply that decision to whatever new case they might have. Um, it, it's it's meant for a variety of reasons. The, the, the most significant is to have stability in the court. If, if if it really was a every every time we get a new justice, the rule of law of of, of constitutional law in particular would you know, shift and could go from you know, night and day uh, based on one new person that wouldn't provide a lot of stability and, and, and I guess uh, the ability to, to plan our futures and to make actions and to pass laws as, as, as Americans if we didn't know how the court stands on a particular issue. Um, that being said, 
stare decisis can act both as a way for uh, for the court to maintain stability, but after a certain amount of time, it can really, you know, some of these very outdated and just plainly wrong and wrongly decided cases um, can be continually applied to case after case after case, and that and that can create, I mean, catastrophic uh, social uh, inequities and and really build up to the point of, of breaking. And what we've seen in the past is in those moments, that's when the court has acted to overturn president. So they've, they've actually, they have not um, used stare decisis and instead have used their uh, power to review those previous decisions and overturn them. For example, the, uh, let's talk a little bit about how you know, Brown versus Board of Education did that exact thing. I think most people have heard of that case. And so what was the what what stare decisis had had applied before that? Yeah, you know, what case had just had, had been there before that, and then Brown versus Board overturned that. So uh, Brown versus Board, um, 1954 uh, decision that um, that integrated public school or rather outlawed segregation in uh, public school education in the United States, um, and that was that effectively overturned uh, 56, 58 odd years of. Um, a precedent that found its sort that that upheld segregation that said separate but equal uh, is constitutional. That that was grounded in Plessy versus Ferguson from uh, the 1890s, I mean 1896. And so Plessy versus Ferguson was a case from our neighbor in Louisiana uh, dealing with um, segregation in rail cars, city trolley cars. Um, and the Supreme Court said in that case that as long as things are uh, equal, then be between you know between a um, you know a black facility or a white facility, that that the segregation is therefore um, constitutional. We all know that that's false and, and just truly wrong on its face. Uh, but it took the court uh, almost sixty years to to be you know honest enough with the American people and and to act in. In the interest of justice, and overturn Plessy versus Ferguson, and then I'll, I'll also say that it took an additional 15 years after Brown versus Board, uh, because all Brown versus Board said was segregation is illegal, can't do that, unconstitutional. Then we had a case that was called Brown Two, which was essentially uh, the same issue that that came back up that asked uh, that came back up to the Supreme Court asked a couple of years later, saying, "Well, if." Segregation is unconstitutional. When do we have to start integrating our public schools? Uh, and the response to that was a was deliberate uh, with all deliberate speed, which was really a pretty wishwashy term that didn't actually mean anything. And what we saw for the 15 years following Brown was continued segregation. Uh, and it actually took a case from Mississippi uh, called Alexander v. Holmes County in 1969 for the court to say. Uh, with some firmness that uh, desegregation means now. All deliberate speed means it needs to be done today. Um, and, and so, it, you know, I think Brown is a perfect example of the, of the slow, almost molasses-like uh, way that the Supreme Court deals with issues and, and can, can act to, um, to reverse itself. Compare that to another uh, stare decisis uh, issue from more recent times, um, in the 1980s, there was a case called Bowers versus Hardwick uh, that came to the Supreme Court, which upheld um, laws, state laws that essentially outlawed um, same-sex couples and same-sex uh, intimacy. 
And what we saw was the in, within 16 years, I think Bauer, I wrote these numbers down. Yeah, it was 16 years. It went from um, 1986 when Bowers was decided until Lawrence v. Texas in 2002, which explicitly overturned Bowers v. Hardwick. So that that was one of the uh, examples of the quickest uh, that a that a Supreme Court has ever or, overturned itself has 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 acted against stare decisis. Um, and so, you know, it, it can be a short thing when, but it can also, you know, it can really start to add up and take its time, which is what we saw with Brown. Mississippi has had its uh, share of Supreme Court cases. We can take your questions on our email address, legalterms at mpbonline.org. The Supreme Court is our topic today. Max Myers from the Mississippi Center for Justice is our guest. Hey, did you know, let's see if Max knew, did you know that there was a grandfather-grandson justice duo? I'm going to tell you more next. This is In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. Thank you for being part of In Legal Terms. If you have missed any of our program, you can listen to the whole show on MPB Think Radio's YouTube channel. It's available on the MPB Public Media app, as are most of our local shows. Our host is Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law. I'm Liz Gill. Hey, at 11 a.m. Central on Tuesdays, following our live over-the-air broadcast, even on our repeats most of the time, you can hear Southern Remedies, relatively speaking, with Dr. Susan Buttress on MPB Think Radio. And Max did know this one. John Marshall Hardin II served from 1955 to 1971. His grandfather was the legendary John Marshall Harlan, who served on the court from 1877 to 1911. The elder Harlan was known as the Great Dissenter for his opposition to rulings that promoted Jim Crow laws in the South. We are talking with Max Myers from the Mississippi Center for Justice about the U.S. Supreme Court. Go ahead, guys. Well, this is such an interesting thing. And you know, one of the things we should look at is the current term, right? I mean, it started in October. And, and um, unfortunately, I, I was uh, a co-author of an amicus brief uh, asking for cert on a particular issue on the attorney-client privilege, which would be we won't go into right now because I would put people to sleep, but that was not granted cert. Uh, but, but what are some of the cases that the court is hearing and, that are important? 
So, um, well, first of all, Dean uh, Gershon, I'll say I'm sorry that your case did not get uh, picked up for cert, but, um, and, and that's also a really great opportunity. I'll, I'll talk very briefly about how a case comes to Supreme Court. So we, we talked earlier about the procedure, what cases can come there. Um, the a writ of certiorari is, is the application for the Supreme Court to, to hear, to pick that appeal up and actually hear it. Um, and in order to, to, for it to be granted, it has to get four votes from the justices' secret conference that they have. And so, four, in other words, four justices have to say they want to hear that case, and then it'll actually get calendared, briefed. Uh, the attorneys for each side will submit their, uh, their best arguments, and then it'll get actually hammered out in oral arguments, uh, which I'll mention, I'll make a quick plug for this. This is the first, uh, the first time in our history where oral arguments are being uh, broadcast live. The audio, not there's no video of it, but the audio is being broadcast live. I really encourage folks uh, to listen to that if they can. You can find more on the Supreme Court's website. Um, it, 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 listening to attorneys uh, advocate for their sides and to have the, the justices interact with them is really the first glimpse that we can get as a, as a, as a public of how the justices themselves are leaning uh, in particular questions. Uh, this term has uh, some of the, I mean, e every term, I will say, you're, you're guaranteed to see some, some pretty generic issues, things like intellectual property, Native American law, um, things like arbitration or the Armed Career Criminals Act. Um, but this, this term has, has all those and more. Uh, and so this term, what they have is, um, they've got a, a couple cases that are dealing uh, with the death penalty. Uh, that's, that's a pretty hot button issue. Um, there's the Boston Marathon, uh, the, the Boston Marathon bomber case, um, and it's whether or not his death penalty should be upheld, as well as a case coming out of Texas as to whether or not a uh, spiritual advisor can, can touch a death row inmate as he's being executed. Um, the Supreme Court is also dealing with speech and whether elected officials uh, can be uh, censured by, uh, by the same body that they serve on for speech that they, that they, that they conduct outside of, uh, of official proceedings. And there's also a guns case. Um, this is a, a major one for the, for the term that I'll talk about very briefly. It's the New York Rifle and Pistol Association case, um, as it sounds, coming out of New York, which basically uh, has a licensure system for concealed uh, carry permits that requires the applicant to demonstrate a personalized need for self-defense in order to obtain that permit. Um, this could, uh, depending on how if the justices want to take a very narrow approach versus a very uh, you know, wide-reaching one. This could simply, you know, lead to the justice saying, oh, try again, New York, you need to write a new law. Or it could also lead to the justice saying there is actually a constitutional right for individuals to have a concealed carry. Um, so it's, there's a lot on the docket. We need to close out our show with our last call from Chris. Chris, we're so glad you've called into In Legal Terms today. What's your comment or question about the Supreme Court of the United States? Thanks for taking my call. My question is, uh, from a legal standpoint, the executive's job is to enforce the laws passed by Congress. But what we've seen, at least uh, with every president this century, there are laws that the president, the, the executive says, I am not going to enforce. Uh, from what is the legal basis that a, that a president, can, that an executive can do that? So the... Um the, the president, um, it, just like you said, is 
you know, they are the executors. They're the ones that, that act on the laws. Um, there have been a couple instances in our nation's history. The most clear example is Andrew Jackson with the Supreme Court's decision in the Native American and the Cherokee Nation cases in Georgia. Um, essentially, the, the court saying that they couldn't, that the federal government could not force removal of Native Americans from Georgia. Andrew Jackson famously said something along the lines of the courts made its decision, let it try to enforce it. And he went ahead and, and acted anyways. Um, that's plainly wrong. And I would say that there is no justification for, uh, you know, for, for exec executives to act outside of what the Supreme Court says, especially when the Supreme Court has specifically ruled on an issue. Um, I, you know, I'm not going to get too much into it, but, but there generally is a belief that with, um, with branches, if one branch is art, has authority and has spoken on a subject, uh, and that, then the other branches need to respect that. So that, that would be this case. Thanks, Chris. We appreciate you calling in. Professor Gershon, we just need to start uh, either preempting money talks or preempting Southern Remedy or just having an additional podcast because we always run out of time. Thank you, Max Myers from the Mississippi Center for Justice for being on our show. We appreciate you. Thank you very much for having me as well. I really appreciate being here with you. And I'll find the link where folks can listen in. Can't watch, but you can listen in to Supreme Court rulings. That's going to wrap us up for In Legal Terms today. I try to have some extra information on our webpage, so we'll see what all good factoids Max wants us to know about the Mississippi or the United States Supreme Court. Thanks, uh, Lisa Lancaster and Jay White, for helping us get our show on. For Professor Richard Gershon, who hosts from the University of Mississippi School of Law, I'm Liz Gill. Liz Gill. Can't even say my own name today. I hope you'll join us next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Central for In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast.